0: Listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all the latest mental health-related news. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress how to make sense of media reports on research into the latest treatments for mental illness. This is where you can get all that and more without the hype and distortion of other media sources with the benefit of more than 20 years of private practice in psychiatry and along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. Welcome back, folks. This is the February 5th, 2014 edition of Psychiatry Today, and of course you can always hear the show live at 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights on America's Web Radio, or like most of you, play back the podcast from AmericasWebRadio.com, and as always, uh, a shout out to those of you who download the podcast from iTunes, thank you so much for your support would love to hear from all of you who listen to the show, no matter how you do it, as to what you like about it, what you'd like to hear more of. Uh, Also, I'm available for any and all mental health-related questions. If you're having a concern about your own mental health or that of someone close to you, you're not sure where to turn for help, or you've tried and it hasn't gone well, please think of me as a resource for your mental health concerns. And send me all of your questions and comments to this email address. That's Dr. Scott. That's D-R-S-C-O-T. Just one T folks, not the usual two. At RadioSandySprings.com. That's D-R-S-C-O-T at R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S.com. I promise you all identifying information will be kept strictly confidential. Nothing that could be uh, potentially incriminating in any way, shape, or form will be mentioned on the air. Just the bare bones question and my answer to you that uh, you will have available to you the week following uh, the following week's show after I get your question. Now, with it being the first show after the Super Bowl, I can't very well uh, neglect to mention the deliriously happy folks in Seattle, yes, congratulations to you all, but uh, I have to say, no matter who you're rooting for in the game, your heart just has to go out to the fans in Denver whose team got blown out and very close to being shut out. Uh So, you know, I, for one, uh, want to say, hey, you know, you guys will need a hug, uh, a shoulder to cry on. Um you have my empathy and sympathy and support. Uh, hopefully you'll be able to get through the rest of the winter and spring and summer until football starts again and uh, hope springs eternal with a new season. And uh, I'm sure you're all also hoping that Peyton Manning's upcoming exam in March uh, comes out well so that he's able to play again next year. Now, let's get to the first topic on this week's show, and that is that you may be noticing when you go to the doctor that instead of having a pen and paper and a folder with lots of papers in it, your doctor has a keyboard and a screen that they're sitting in front of, or perhaps they have a laptop, or perhaps they have a tablet. With the advent of electronic health records, uh, which there was a big push for starting back with the George W. Bush administration, doctors are increasingly keeping patients' records electronically and no longer on paper. But the problem is that during a doctor's appointment patients may have to compete with computers for doctors' attention. This sounds strange, but this is what's happening, and uh, actually this issue has been studied. The doctor will see you now is turning into the doctor will watch the screen. Uh, the new study suggests that physicians may be spending too much time looking at their computer screens when seeing patients. The study found that those who use electronic health records in the examination room spend about one-third of patient visits looking at the computer screen, which interferes with their ability to interact with patients. When doctors spend that much time looking at the computer, it can actually be difficult for patients to get their attention, as incredible as that sounds. It's likely that the ability to listen problem-solve, and think creatively is not optimal when physicians' eyes are glued to the screen. What they did is that the researchers analyzed eye gaze patterns and communication that took place during 100 doctor-patient visits, in which the doctors accessed electronic health records. Researchers found that physician-patient eye gaze patterns are different during a visit in which electronic health records versus a paper chart are used. Not only does the doctor spend less time looking at the patient, but the patient also almost always looks at the computer screen whether or not the patient can see or understand what is on the screen. Hopefully, this type of research could lead to improved doctor training guidelines and, most of all, better-designed electronic healthcare care technology. For example, future such systems could feature more interactive screen time between doctors and patients. Well, that is an interesting idea, but <clears throat> I don't know that that necessarily solves the problem of lack of interaction between doctor and patient. That may just get both doctor and patient involved more in the computer screen, not necessarily involved more with interacting and not necessarily getting the doctor to be more observant of the patient and interacting more on a personal level. Now, in defense of doctors and the tendency to have their eyes looking more at the screen than at the patient, the situation is such that if a doctor is using an electronic health record system, uh, that computer system, the electronic health record system, is fairly work-intensive. There are a lot of things that need to be included in that electronic health record for it to be valid. Uh, For example, most doctors are Medicare providers, that is, they accept Medicare patients, most not all, and if you are not going to have your Medicare reimbursements docked for lack of adequate use of electronic health records, then your electronic health record system has to satisfy criteria known as meaningful use. Now, the meaningful use criteria for electronic health records, ladies and gentlemen, there are reams and reams of things about the electronic health record system that have to satisfy this meaningful use. And this is, uh, again, mandated by Medicare. And, yes, that is our government health organization. People talk about Obamacare being government health care system. Well, not really. We've had government health care ever since uh, Medicare came into being, and and so uh, until and unless someone comes up with a way of making these electronic health record systems more user friendly, uh, it is very detail intensive, very work intensive, and I don't see how it could help but take away something from the doctor-patient interaction. Uh, so hopefully the outcome of this research will be that these systems become more streamlined and more user friendly and less work intensive so that the doctor can concentrate more on the examination and the interaction with the patient and uh, concentrate less on satisfying every requirement and detail that has to be completed on the screen. Now, I will say per, on a personal level that I have not yet adopted electronic health records. I feel like a dinosaur that's so 20th century of me, 20th century of me rather. But in my defense, I will say uh, the latest statistics that I saw from uh, Medicare were that of all solo health practitioners like myself, I am just a solo private practitioner, uh just about only a third have uh, adopted electronic health records, at least to the extent of satisfying meaningful use criteria for Medicare. Uh, so uh, two, I'm like two-thirds of my colleagues who are solo practitioners who have not yet uh, taken this plunge. And while I do see it as an inevitability that I personally will adopt electronic health records and uh, get rid of the paper and pen, uh, I I feel that it will be important to me to keep the personal interaction and the face-to-face contact and the eye contact with the patient. Now, of course, we psychiatrists, I think, uh, at least I hope anyway, really should be the specialty that has the most attention being paid to face-to-face interaction, eye contact, I mean, even if we're only doing medication management and not uh, an hour of psychotherapy, you still should be having the most interaction because, after all, we are talking to our patients, asking questions, hearing their concerns, trying to educate and offer advice. Uh, We're not uh, using examination tools like stethoscope or, or reflex hammer or so on. And I don't uh, want adoption of electronic health records to change that. Uh, So I'm picturing instead of sitting at a workstation with a monitor and a keyboard, perhaps using a tablet or maybe a a tablet-laptop hybrid, uh, something that can be sitting uh, in front of me or in my lap, much like a paper chart would be, and – in that way, approximate the same sort of logistics of the interaction and the same positioning and uh, thereby not having to break eye contact so much with the patient and uh, looking at the screen so much, but have it more like similar to having a paper and pen uh, and not having to have the computer workstation dominate the interaction. When I get to that point, I'll let you know how it works out. All right, well, This takes us to our first commercial break on tonight's show. When we come back, more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Come on, follow Snipples to Atlanta's go-to center for breathing easy. Do you
2: suffer from chronic sinus headaches, recurrent sinusitis, facial pain or pressure, and chronic congestion? Well, balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. FollowSniffles.com. Sniffles.com. We treat the problem, not the symptom. Chronic sinus symptoms, gone. This could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy, back to work the next day, and it's done under local anesthesia. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow Sniffles.com. Nine eight
1: six
0: two. You're listening to America'sWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry today with Dr. Scott. Once again, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio with all the latest mental health-related news. Now, there is an important message for those of you who have children or grandchildren with ADHD. And those of you who have ADHD yourselves, drivers with ADHD, which stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, may be at higher risk for serious car crashes. <clears throat> now, let me again remind the listeners who aren't aware of this, uh, just to define terms, uh, we psychiatrists don't use the term ADD anymore. That is an outdated, uh, outmoded term, uh, that is no longer in use. The current terminology is ADHD. Doesn't matter whether you have hyperactivity or not. I know this is confusing. Uh, I wish it hadn't been changed, but it actually changed many years ago and some people just aren't aware of it. But it's all called ADHD and then you have the hyperactive type, the, um, the inattentive type and the combined type, which has features of both. Alright, so, so that explains why I'm saying ADHD and not saying ADD. All right, now let's get into this article. Drivers with ADHD are nearly 50% more likely to be in a serious car crash, according to this new study. Further, men with ADHD can dramatically decrease their risk of traffic accidents if they take their medication for their condition. Now, this study was done in Sweden, but the uh, data are probably applicable to our population of ADHD patients here in the United States. Now, this study confirms the importance of treatment and medication for adults with ADHD as well as teens who drive. The core symptoms of ADHD include problems with sustained attention and impulsivity, which can have an adverse effect on driving safety. Now, all drivers with ADHD need to responsibly manage their treatment to reduce driving risks. Although it's not a criteria for the diagnosis, among doctors who treat a lot of patients with ADHD, like myself, it's a well-known fact, uh, and this has been very well documented by a lot of previous research, that patients with ADHD are more prone to have car accidents and to get traffic tickets than people without ADHD. The researchers looked at a review of more than 17,000 people in Sweden with ADHD. They were between the ages of 18 to 46. And this was done at the Karolinska Institute, one of the most prestigious medical research facilities in the world. They used databases to track whether the patients had been in a car accident between 2006 and 2009, and also they tracked if the patients had filled a prescription for ADHD medication at the time. Overall, having ADHD increased a man's risk of a traffic crash by 47% and a woman's risk by 45%. They then investigated the role of medication in preventing crashes by determining whether people involved in a wreck had filled a prescription for ADHD medicine within the previous six months. Men who were treated substantially lowered their risk for accidents. Access to ADHD medication reduced men's risk of a car wreck by 58% compared to men who did not take medication. Interestingly, though, the same difference wasn't found with women women with ADHD did not receive any significant benefit from taking their medication in terms of reducing the rates of car crashes. And the article doesn't really address this difference, but I found this fascinating. What does this tell us? Uh, does it tell us that women with ADHD are just inherently much more careful drivers and they uh, don't need their medication to have low rates of car crashes? Um, is this a gender difference that would be the same regardless of having ADHD or not? Uh, <clears throat> found this quite interesting, but again, it just goes to show you that even among uh, a population of people with the same exact disorder, uh, men and women may manifest that illness in very different ways. The study was published online in the January 29 issue of the Journal of Journal of the AMA Psychiatry. And there was no funding from any drug companies. So this had nothing to do with any sponsored by uh, a company who makes ADHD medication, not at all. This was just uh, uh, pure research with, without that type of bias. Breaking down the numbers further, the researchers estimated that between 41% and 49% of the car accidents involving men with ADHD could have been avoided if they had been taking their medication as prescribed. About three of five children with ADHD carry the disorder with them into adulthood, and that amounts to about 8 million adults living with ADHD. Previous research with ADHD patients in virtual reality driving simulators found that they are more likely to speed, drive erratically, tap the brakes, and accelerate into potential accidents. These sorts of things are more likely in individuals with ADHD than in those without. Now, you do not necessarily have to fear getting into a car with a driver who has ADHD. Among people who have ADHD, there tend to be two groups, a group that is distracted and impulsive and a group that drives just fine. Not everyone with ADHD has this problem, but a substantial percentage does. This study highlights another reason why getting an appropriate diagnosis for adult ADHD is important and why it's important to get the ADHD treated. Well, this may provide our explanation for why there is this gender difference. After all, if we know anything short of uh, the difference in car accidents about the differences between male and female patients with ADHD, we know that females are much more likely to have the inattentive-only subtype of ADHD, whereas males are much more likely to have the hyperactivity-impulsivity component of the disorder so that they have perhaps purely the hyperactive-impulsive type of ADHD or more likely the combined type, which includes inattentiveness and hyperactivity-impulsivity. So that may be why... The rates of crashes are so much higher in men than in women, uh, and even women who are not medicated don't have higher risk of car crashes. Now, people with ADHD should take extra precautions that will help them keep their mind on the road. In addition to medication, this can mean limiting distractions like texting or cell phones having fewer passengers in the car, breaking up monotonous drives with frequent breaks, and being more vigilant about driving defensively. All right, so, so there you go, folks. Uh, another thing to take into account about ADHD. So if uh, you are listening to the show, you're a man with ADHD, make sure you're taking your medication when you're driving and uh, you'll be much less likely to get into a crash. And if you have a family member that you're going to be driving with who has ADHD, um, encourage them to take their medication. Certainly, if you have a teenage, uh, a new driver with ADHD, uh, um, I know that you want your child or your grandchild, whoever it is, to be safe. And, of course, teenage drivers are in such a danger as it is, uh, because even without ADHD, they tend to be uh, somewhat distracted and impulsive. Uh, So it's even more urgent for them to make sure they're taking their medication. All right, next up on the show, a study that concussions may lead to Alzheimer's brain plaques. Now, in recent years, there's been a lot more attention to concussions and their consequences. A lot of this attention has to do with the National Football League and their renewed focus on paying closer attention uh, to players who suffer concussions during the game, making sure that they obtain the appropriate assessment and treatment and making sure that they're taken out of the game as soon as possible and not allowed to practice or play again until they have sufficiently Recovered. This is not something that was done in years past. And indeed, uh, a recent settlement of a large lawsuit of former NFL players against the National Football League is on hold now. The judge did not think it was adequate, that the settlement was adequate, to take care of all the current and future claims. So that's still up in the air. <clears throat> in the meantime, the benefit that society at large has had from all of this is that there's a lot more research into the effects of concussions. Uh, So this isn't just for the benefit of football players. This is for the benefit of everybody who may have a head injury and suffer a concussion. Now, this latest study shows that people who suffer concussions may be at a higher risk of developing plaques on the brain that are typical of those found in people with Alzheimer's disease. The study was featured in the journal Neurology. The new research examines the relationship between concussions and plaques of a protein called amyloid beta in the brain. While the study couldn't prove a direct causal effect of this, it helps to shed light on the possible long-term effects of traumatic brain injuries. We know that traumatic brain injuries can lead to uh, dementia, uh, this, hopefully, is a, a, me- a look at the direct mechanism. Now, the study author, uh, Michelle Milki, a, a researcher at the Mayo Clinic, scanned the brains of 589 people ages 70 or older. Of those, 141 had symptoms of mild cognitive impairment, which is considered a precursor of Alzheimer's disease. All of them were asked about whether they'd suffered a concussion in the past. Researchers found that 17% of the 448 people without thinking or memory problems reported a brain injury, while 18% of the 141 people with memory problems reported a concussion or other head trauma. Uh, so the head trauma definitely seems to be playing a significant role. Well, we will continue to look at this research finding and have other mental health related topics when we come back from our next commercial break, you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott.
0: Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on America's Webradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on America's anytime you like.
3: This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Thank you, God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. This is
0: David Donaldson with the Atlanta Healing Center, conveniently located in Lawrenceville, Georgia. At AHC,
1: your success is our goal. Addiction recovery is about more than just not using. It's about becoming a whole person and addressing all aspects of your physical, psychological, and social needs. Please call us at 770-696-9862, or you can reach us on the web at
0: www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
2: This is Cheryl Linker, host of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio, Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Join us as we keep things fun and interesting as we educate you in the world of master
1: gardening.
0: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio with you, giving you all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about a study that found concussions may lead to the same type of protein brain plaques that are found in Alzheimer's disease patients. Now, the uh, the brain scans on the patients in the study found no differences among the people without memory and thinking impairments, regardless of their past head trauma. However, those with memory and thinking impairments, and also a history of previous head trauma, had an average of 18% more of these amyloid beta plaques, which are the hallmark of Alzheimer's disease, than those with no history of head trauma. So in these people with a history of a concussion, a difference in the amount of brain plaques was found only in those with memory and thinking problems, not in those who were cognitively normal. These results add merit to the idea that concussion, which re- results in thinking and memory problems, and Alzheimer's disease brain pathology may be related. Any relationship between head trauma and amyloid plaque development is likely to be complex. According to the Alzheimer's Association Previous research has been linking brain injuries to dementia and other cognitive problems for more than 30 years. Emerging research in athletes who participate in high-contact sports, football, boxing, hockey, etc., show that repeated blows to the head make them more likely to develop a specific form of dementia called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. I think the take-home point for all of us, even those of us who are not athletes, is that concussions have to be taken seriously, and perhaps if they're not treated appropriately, uh, it can lead to problems that can cause permanent damage to thinking and memory, much like someone who eventually develops Alzheimer's disease. And hopefully research like this will shed some light on dementia uh, like Alzheimer's dementia as well as the impact of concussions. Uh, But if you think about the differences, not everyone with a concussion will go on to develop an increased amount of these plaques in the brain. So obviously a lot more work needs to be done to figure out, well, what is the difference between those who wound up developing these plaques after a concussion and those who did not. Um, Now, even the most casual sports fan, uh, we can note there are certain differences among people we know suffered a great deal of concussions. Uh, Just take a look, for example, at former San Francisco 49er quarterback Steve Young. He suffered multiple concussions over the course of his career. indeed had to terminate his career because of them, and yet he works as uh, an analyst for ESPN. And if you listen to him discuss things uh, on SportsCenter or other programs where he is uh, one of the analysts, his speech seems very clear. He seems articulate. Lucid. Uh, he doesn't seem to stumble in terms of his speech. In short, this does not present the picture of someone who has had multiple concussions over many years and is suffering from a lot of cognitive problems as a result. Likewise, uh, if we look at another former uh, NFL quarterback, Troy Aikman, who played for the Dallas Cowboys. He works as um, a game day analyst for the Fox Network, and if you watch a football game where he's the uh, analyst, um, again, he seems quite articulate, nothing wrong with his speech, um, and uh, no evidence in listening to him describe game action that there's any kind of cognitive impairment. Contrast those two fellows with the very sad case of Jim McMahon, which uh, he's a former NFL quarterback of the Chicago Bears. And uh, I remember seeing a, a documentary piece about him in which he has very, very severe memory problems. Um, he lives with his girlfriend, and she worries uh, that sometimes he won't be able to find his way home uh, when he goes out driving somewhere. And he is nothing like the brash, outspoken person he was when he was a player. Um speech is hesitant, not as articulate, uh, and it's very clear that he's a shadow of his former self. So this research is very important. It tells us we have a lot to learn about the consequences of concussions, and they seem to differ quite a bit from person to person. And hopefully we'll learn more. And again, um, I hope you're not too put off by the focus on football players. They're uh, a microcosm of the population of a whole who suffers head trauma. And by studying them, there are lessons for the broader population at large, including the non-athlete. All right, well, moving on to our next item on tonight's show. Postpartum depression, a very serious complication of pregnancy. Is it possible that allowing women a longer maternity leave could prevent postpartum depression? Well, new research shows that having a longer maternity leave may do just that, may reduce a woman's risk of postpartum depression. The findings suggest that that the typical maximum 12 weeks of maternity leave, that's three months, given to American mothers under federal law may be inadequate. Of course it's inadequate. It's preposterous, just three months. Now, the research was done at the University of Maryland. Uh, In the United States, most working women are back to work quite soon after giving birth, with the majority not taking more than three months of leave. This study showed that women who return to work sooner than six months after childbirth have an increased risk of postpartum depressive symptoms. That's going back to work less than six months after giving birth. There's an increased risk of postpartum depressive symptoms. In the year after giving birth, about 13% of mothers experience postpartum depression which can cause serious symptoms similar to clinical depression. The study included more than 800 women in Minnesota who were followed for a year after they gave birth. About 7% of the mothers went back to work within 6 weeks, 46% by 12 weeks, and 87% by 6 months. Women who were still on maternity leave At each of those time points had lower postpartum depression scores than those who would return to work. These findings were published in the, uh, they were published online back on December 4th in the Journal of Health Politics, Policy and Law. The researchers concluded that the current leave duration provided by the Family and Medical Leave Act of 12 weeks May not be sufficient for mothers at risk for or experiencing postpartum depression. And study authors recommend that future discussions about maternity leave policy should take into consideration the health of mothers after they give birth. They also noted that many women are not covered by the Family and Medical Leave Act or cannot afford to take unpaid leave and have to return to work sooner than what may be ideal for their health after giving birth. Now you can see coming out with a recommendation like this is bound to be controversial. Uh, Employers are going to say look we are already providing a substantial break for women after they deliver before they have to come back to work and what's going to happen to the workplace if pregnant women are allowed to take six months or more of maternity leave after giving birth, uh, this is going to be too disruptive to the workplace and uh, harm productivity. Well, you know, no doubt that that is a important, significant issue, uh, but all I can say is, postpartum depression is very, very severely disabling, and uh, it certainly causes. A lot of impairment of the woman's quality of life, not to mention a very negative effect on the newborn. Now, <clears throat> I would ask employers who are concerned about expanding maternity leave benefits: uh, How would you like it if you yourself, as a, if you were a woman, um, had developed postpartum depression that affected you and you? newborn baby, or if you're a man, if your wife, had given birth, had to go back to work quickly and suffered from a postpartum depression, and uh, the negative effects that can have on the baby as well. Uh, again, no clear, easy answer to what to do about this, but the findings are important and cannot be ignored. Uh, the longer the maternity leave, the less likely there will be postpartum depression. Next on tonight's show, an important message about physical health of those who suffer from mental illness. It has been well known for quite some time that those who suffer from severe mental health syndromes uh, take very poor care of their own physical health and therefore have uh, much lower life expectancy than those who do not have a serious psychiatric syndrome. Uh, This new study I'm going to talk about now is talking about patients with bipolar disorder and the importance of maintaining their physical health. People with bipolar disorder are more likely to have poor physical health, and using information from medical records, researchers found that these patients were more likely to develop conditions like kidney disease and diabetes than the general population. Also, bipolar disorder patients with heart disease or high blood pressure were less likely to be prescribed medication to treat those conditions than people without bipolar disorder. I found that to be scandalous that psychiatric patients may somehow be stigmatized and not get as appropriately aggressive treatment for their medical problems as those who are not psychiatrically ill. Uh, Or maybe there are patient factors. Maybe the patients are not good at accessing the care because of their illness. We'll take a closer look at the findings and explain more about it when we come back from this next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott.
2: Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. Membership. Are you an IHC member? Access to the Institute for Healthcare Consumerism's Breaking News industry trends, expert blogs, and networking with IHC's industry-wide member community. IHC membership puts you at the focal point of the dynamic health and benefit industry, allowing you to join the conversation and collaborate with industry stakeholders and your peers. Your IHC membership includes a subscription to Healthcare Consumerism Solutions Magazine, Healthcare Exchange Solutions Magazine, Annual Publications Healthcare Solutions Superstars, and Healthcare Solutions Outlook a free white paper, and much more. Sign up as a free IHC member or $99 premium IHC member today at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. Nine
0: eight, six, two. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you. I want to remind you of the email address for me for those who have questions or comments regarding anything I've discussed on tonight's show or previous show, or if you have questions and concerns relating to your mental health or that of someone close to you again, the email address for me is Dr. Scott. That's spelled D-R-S-C-O-T at RadioSandysprings.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S dot com. That email is only for questions related to the psychiatry today show and not from a private practice. For that, which is in Roswell, Georgia, please call 678-822-0250. Getting back to our discussion about bipolar disorder patients and their physical health challenges. It turns out that the study investigated whether people with bipolar disorder were more likely to have health conditions than those without bipolar disorder, and turns out they found that they are. Now, bipolar disorder, of course, if you don't know, it's a mental illness characterized by alternating periods of intense depression and then other periods of mania, or elevated energetic mood. Researchers looked at data from the Primary Care Clinical Informatics Unit at the University of Aberdeen in the UK. This data looked at 1.7.5 million living patients. Now, the patients with bipolar disorder diagnoses were first identified, and then their medical records were compared to, To patients without bipolar disorder, they found that almost 2,600 patients had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Of these, almost 64%, almost two-thirds, had at least one physical health condition, including kidney disease, chronic pain, and diabetes. These were the most, uh, more significantly, more common in bipolar disorder patients than those who were not bipolar. And there was a risk ratio of 1.27 times more likely to have one of the 32 most common physical conditions compared to patients without bipolar disorder. And the bipolar patients were about 1.4 times more likely to have two or three physical conditions in addition to their psychiatric diagnosis. Patients with bipolar disorder and heart disease or high blood pressure were significantly less likely to be taking medication to control their physical conditions than people without bipolar disorder. Uh, and Therefore, they were more likely than the general population to have a coexisting chronic physical health problem and less likely to receive prescriptions to control heart disease and high blood pressure when diagnosed with those conditions. Equal access to health care may not result in equal treatment and care for people with bipolar disorder, and there needs to be more research to improve the diagnosis and treatment of bipolar patients with physical health problems. Now, this study was published in BMC Medicine, on December the 23rd, 2013, there is not any speculation in the article about the research as to what the reasons are for these findings. But, um, you know, I, I think the possibilities include the fact that patients with bipolar disorder uh, in general may not take good care of themselves uh, because of the differing cycles between mania and depression. When a bipolar patient is manic, they feel like they're on top of the world and nothing could be wrong, and uh, they certainly would not think they're in a position to need medical care. Likewise, when they're very low and depressed, uh, they may not have the energy or motivation or focus to be able to take proper care of themselves, get to medical appointments, get their prescriptions filled. Uh, So again, it's not hard to see how self-care would suffer no matter which phase of the illness they may happen to be in. So there are the patient factors involved here, not taking the time and effort and trouble to access medical care, uh, not complying with um, providers' recommendations, including follow-up for tests and prescriptions and so on. But then there's the uh, darker uglier explanation, which is that even if bipolar patients are being seen by primary care practitioners, are they getting the help that they need or are they marginalized and stigmatized because of their major psychiatric diagnosis and not given the same appropriate treatment? Are their complaints dismissed as symptoms of their mood disorder and uh, referred back to their psychiatrist for management. It is the case that many patients with a major psychiatric illness, such as bipolar disorder, will only see their psychiatrist and will not take the time to visit other medical practitioners. That is not at all uncommon. Regardless of uh, the reasons, uh, I'm glad to see that There is more focus being put on the physical health of patients who have mental illness uh, because there is no need for them to suffer greater number of chronic diseases and have them not cared for as well and have lower life expectancy than people who have the same disorders but do not suffer from mental illness. All right, let's let's uh, let's go to a children's mental health update. Uh, kids who are subject to teasing are less apt to engage in physical activity. Now, usually, you're, if you're a regular and long-time listener to the show, you're used to me talking about bullying. Um, teasing is probably something that you're not used to my saying. Uh, I can well understand that the the word teasing would seem to trivialize what is more typically called bullying or outright verbal abuse, peer abuse among children. I'm just going with the terminology in the article about the research. But regardless of uh, semantic aspects, uh, I think it's, again, important to uh, keep the focus on the emotional lives of children and find out that uh, peer interactions that can be very negative and very abusive have long-lasting impact on their health. And that's uh, what this research is about. Children who are teased while playing sports tend to have a worse quality of life than their non-teased peers, according to this new study. Some of them may also become less active physically over time. The teasing not only influences psychological functioning, but may reduce physical activity and lead to poor physical, social, and emotional functioning for children. The link between teasing and less physical activity is particularly concerning considering most children are already not exercising as much as they should because they're spending much more time in front of the computer or tablet or smartphone uh, or game console screen. Previous research shows less than one in 10 children meets the US Department of Health and Human Services recommendation to participate in at least one hour of moderate or vigorous physical activity every day. Less than one out of 10. Researchers surveyed 108 kids between the ages of 9 to 12, first in t- 2010, and then again in 2011. And they asked the kids about their participation in 21 different types of physical activity before, during, and after school, and how often they had been teased while playing sports or exercising since kindergarten. Researchers also asked the kids how well they functioned physically and emotionally, with friends, and at school. Together, those measures were used to determine children's health-related quality of life. Children who were teased reported a worse quality of life than those who were not. In particular, obese and overweight kids who reported being teased on the first survey had a poorer quality of life both initially and again one year later. The research was published in the Journal of Pediatric Psychology. Negative effects of teasing appear to be persistent, affecting important outcomes one year after teasing is reported. Normal weight kids who reported being teased on the first survey were more likely to become less active over the next year. For overweight and obese kids, teasing reported in year two was linked to less physical activity the same year. This is another thing that school policymakers are encouraged to think of in terms of looking at peer victimization as a direct threat to children's health outcomes. The findings provide support for comprehensive bullying prevention programs and suggest that efforts to reduce peer victimization In the context of physical activity participation may be helpful in promoting physical activity participation and children's quality of life. Being teased or being bullied in any kind of an ongoing way itself is a symptom and worsens symptoms. Kids who are teased often have vulnerabilities such as low self-esteem, before the teasing starts. Any kid, no matter how healthy they are, can have isolated instances of bullying. But a pattern of consistent bullying probably points to inner pain in the child who is bullied. One way to address or prevent repeated teasing is to increase the size of children's friend circles so they're not always on the fringes. That way they can travel from class to class with a pack. Easier said than done. Parents can arrange sleepovers or other activities with children's peers outside of school and boost their children's confidence by identifying their areas of strength and making sure they are regularly exposed to these areas. They can also encourage physical activity, proper nutrition, prevent obesity, And discourage teasing. In addition, the importance of parents spending one-on-one time with their children focused entirely on what the child is doing or saying will improve their self-esteem. But every school should have an anti-bullying program. All right, and with that, we're going to wrap up tonight's show. I hope that you enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed bringing this information to you and hope that you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together again next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening.